0: Can everybody hear me now? Strike two. We got it. We got it. I want to tell everybody good morning. Welcome everybody to Grace Community Church. And we are continuing our study in the book of Genesis as a local church. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Genesis 15. And we're going to take a second and we're going to call on God again. And we're going to ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord. And we gather again, Lord, as a hungry people and as a needy people, God. And we confess that to you today, Lord. That we need to see you, Lord. We need to see you. And we ask you, God, to draw nearer to us today, Lord. And to be faithful to us again. God, many times, Lord, you have displayed your faithfulness to us, God. And you have given us exactly what we needed from your word. God, and we ask that. You would do that again, Lord, in our midst. Father, we just say to you, Lord, that your word, we believe that your word is freedom for the slave. God, make that true in our midst this morning, God. Cause your word to go forth with such power and such authority, Lord, that it sets captives free today. Free from sin, free from Satan. Father, we tell you, Lord, that we need to see Jesus yet again today, God. And we ask you to exalt Christ in our midst, Lord. Holy Spirit, visit us, God, as we give attention to this text and to this passage. We ask you to exalt Jesus. Make Christ and his his work glorious to us, Lord. Help us to see it rightly today. God, help us to give attention to your word. God, we ask for the help that only you can give, God, the help of your Holy Spirit, both in preaching and in hearing. God, come glorify your name today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And we get a special gift from the Lord today. We get to give attention to a passage of Scripture that shows up all over the Bible. Okay, So in a lot of ways, you know, when we see these very important um, texts, these very important passages of Scripture, in a lot of ways, if we understand these, in a lot of ways, it transfers and we have a solid understanding of the entire Bible. And this is certainly true of Genesis chapter 15. So I want to say a few things to make sure we understand where we're going as a local church today. And this is a perfect setting for these baptisms that we're about to have some brothers and sisters in Christ that are about to take their boast in the Lord. And this is the perfect foundation for us to see that for us to see that the passage that we get to study today we get the privilege of doing this, privilege of considering Genesis 15. It's a privilege because this text answers the greatest question that humans face. Okay, It asks and it answers our greatest problem. Okay, Job chapter 4 gives us what I call the greatest question that a human being could ever ask. So listen to this. Job chapter 4. Verse 17 says this. Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? I'll read that one more time. Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And I think that this is the greatest question that's ever been asked because it deals with the greatest problem that any human being could ever face. Listen to that. The greatest problem that any human being could ever face. And that is true for every one of us. And that is true no matter. That, that's no qualifiers there. No matter the difficulties that you bring in the room this morning or that you have navigated through in your life. There is a problem that far exceeds all of them. Okay? And that problem is twofold according to Scripture. Let me start in Romans chapter 3. It's a twofold problem. It says that none is righteous. In fact, can one of you y'all slip and close this door over here? I don't want us to be distracted today. Sorry for doing that. We got some kids uh, stretching their vocal cords uh, next door. Okay? So let's pause, regroup. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, says this. None is righteous, no, not one. Okay? None is righteous, no, not one. That's the first domino of the twofold problem. The worst problem facing humanity. Every single human being. None is righteous, no, not one. That's true of every one of us in this room. Okay? We have all sinned. We have all rebelled against God. God has given us his authoritative law and we have transgressed those boundaries. And that sin has left us in this state that God looks at every one of us and he says, not righteous. No, not one. And that no, not one just settles it for every human being in the room and every human being on the planet that we have that sneaky thought of, oh, what about what about me? No, no one is righteous, not even one in all of planet Earth. But that's only the first part of this twofold problem. Our problem is actually way worse than that. We are not righteous. And yet at the same time, the Bible repeatedly over and over, the Bible tells us that God is righteous. We are not righteous and that God is righteous. And those two things... Go together like gas and a match, and they explode with God the righteous judge judging unrighteous sinners. Okay? That's the twofold problem. We are not righteous, and God is righteous. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, tells us that God is so righteous, that God is so holy, that his eyes are so pure, that the Bible teaches us that he cannot even look upon sin he recoils at it his very nature can't be in his presence the unrighteous cannot be in the presence of the righteous one and the bible tells us it goes a step further than this the bible tells us not only can sin and unrighteousness not only can it not be in god's presence the bible tells us that god is going to respond to unrighteousness and to sin with judgment In fact, it says with eternal wrath. So I want you to hold your place in Genesis 15 and go to the very end of the Bible with me for just a moment. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. When we say things like this, that God is going to judge the unrighteous, I want to make sure this morning that we're not hearing those things like background truths. Oh yeah, yeah, I got that. Okay? So Revelation 6, it it camps in this this truth that God is going to judge the unrighteous and it gives us a vivid description of this righteous wrath falling on unbelievers. And I want us to read it together. Revelation chapter 6, beginning... In verse 15. Says this. Then the kings of the earth. And the great ones. And the generals. And the rich and the powerful. And everyone. Slave and free. Hid themselves in caves. And among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks. Saying. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Is that not absolutely terrifying? Absolutely terrifying that... All unrighteous, unsaved humanity, Jesus is revealed at the end of their time at the end of time and they're screaming to one another and they're asking for mountains to crush their brains in because they don't want to stand before this righteous lamb in their unrighteousness. That's how terrifying of a judgment we're talking about. This is the ultimate problem that any human being, Can face in any generation anywhere on planet earth. Can you think of anything, anything more terrifying than this, than this eternal wrath from God the righteous one poured out on all who are unrighteous? Can you think of anything more terrible than this? So then you see from the end. You pull it back into today and you see just how important this question is. Touches the very core of our need. Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Because if there's not an answer to that question, then every one of us are doomed. We would rather the mountains crash us to pieces than to stand before Jesus. In our sins, can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? The Bible's answer to that question is yes. Yes, man can be right before God. And there is a way for man to be pure before his maker. But here's the catch. There's only one way. There's only one way that this works that the unrighteous and that's every single one of us. There's only one way that the unrighteous are made right with God. And Genesis 15 reveals that one way. Genesis 15 reveals that pattern by which holy God makes unrighteous sinners right with him. And this pattern is the only way it ever works. Okay? We're going to see that by the time that we're done. That this is the only way. Genesis to Revelation and even to this day. This is the only way that sinful human beings have ever been made right with God. And so now the stakes are set, right? Now we got some, some, some meat. Oh man, I need to understand what God says in Genesis 1. 15, because it's the only way that unrighteous men and women can be made right with God. And so with that in view, let's read our text together this morning. Let's read our text together. Genesis 15. We're going to call this the gospel according to the book of Genesis. So, You've heard about the gospel according to the book of Matthew. I mean, the gospel according to Matthew. According to Mark, according to Luke, and according to John, this is the gospel according to Genesis. Genesis 15, verse 1. Let's read our text together. This is what the Lord says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, "O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Our prayer is that God would bless the preaching of his word. So let's get oriented for just a moment of where we're at in Genesis 15. We're not going to spend much time here, okay? But we're jumping into the middle of Abram's life in Genesis 15. And this is on the back side of of Genesis chapter 14 where Abram goes to war against four kings. And he experienced this, this great military victory with just over 300 men. He goes to rescue his, his captive nephew Lot. And he slaughters four kings and their armies. Supernatural military victory. But Abram also in that same chapter. He experienced a spiritual victory. If you are here last week. You know how this, this went. He, After the military victory. The king of Sodom offers Abram. He offers him the spools of war. Okay. And Abram refuses those spoils from the king of Sodom. And he refuses them for spiritual reasons. Because he's got faith in the Lord God. And he looks at the king of Sodom and he refuses those spoils. Lest everybody else say that the king of Sodom is the one that made Abram rich. So Abram refused that spoil because he had faith in God. He didn't want to move forward in, the, in, in acquiring the land apart from God doing that on his behalf. He didn't want to take a step in the flesh. So he said no to the king of Sodom and he trusted God. And that's exactly where we come in in Genesis chapter 15. Verse 1 says, after these things, after that stuff, after that military victory, after that spiritual victory that Abram experienced, the Lord's spirit, speaks to him the lord speaks to him in verse 1 word of god comes to abram verse 1 and god tells him two things he promises to abram that god is going to he says abram i'm going to be your shield okay that's a promise of protection now I want you to put yourself in abram's place god uses you and 300 people to go and, and slaughter the armies of four kings in Mesopotamia. And even the most spiritual among us. Okay. That sits on you for a while. And you're praising God. And you're thanking God for what he did. Couple of days. Couple of weeks. Couple of months go by. And these thoughts start coming of. Man what happens if the rest of the Mesopotamian army hears about what I did. What happens if they regroup and rally and come back for some retaliation? I got 300 men. You see that? So you have these fears that Abram is is battling with in his mind. And God says, I will be your shield. Shield is this, this promise of protection. God says, I protected you in Egypt before Pharaoh. And then God protects him. Um, In this battle before these four kings. And and here he is. God is promising. I've protected you and I will continue to protect you. This is a promise of earthly protection in the midst of dangers. God also tells him one other thing. He tells him that Abram will receive a very great reward. Abram will receive a very great reward. I want you to listen to me closely on this. Okay, that that Hebrew word reward. Every other time it is used in the Book of Genesis, it is used to refer to earthly monetary possessions. Okay, earthly monetary possessions. Okay, I believe that that is exactly what God is promising Abram in verse one, in context of what Abram shunned. Abram said no to the spoils of the king of Sodom, lest they say the king of Sodom made Abram rich. And I believe that God is promising to take a rich man already and make him very, very rich. His reward will be very great. Okay? And so here's what we see in verse 1. The Lord God comes to Abram, okay? And he promises him earthly things. He promises him earthly protection and earthly possessions. Okay, earthly protection and earthly possessions. And then listen to how it goes in in verse one. Listen to how Abram responds. Sorry, verse two. He says this. What will you give me? So he's talking to he's talking to God. He's talking to the one in Isaiah six that angels are covering themselves and they can't even look at God. And Abram says to God, what will you give me? Okay. And before we start down the wrong path, I want to tell you what I don't think is happening here. God promises Abram earthly blessing, earthly protection, earthly possessions. And I don't think that this phrase is Abram being a spoiled brat and coming to God and rubbing him like a genie in the bottle. What are you going to give me, Lord? What are you going to give me, Lord? I want us to pay close attention to what else is said in verse 2. He's promised earthly blessing, and then he says this in verse 2. I continue childless. I continue childless. What are you going to give me, Lord? For I continue Childhood, and we're pulled into this man's burden. Okay, in verse two, we're pulled into Abram has got has received promises in verse one, but in verse two, he's discerning that something is missing in the promises of verse one. Something is deficient. Can y'all hear me? That's interesting. All right, we'll go with the. We'll go with Alright, we're, 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 we're preaching in the midst of adversity today. We're going to overcome every single one of them in the name of the Lord. Alright, so let's reset, okay? In verse 2, Abram is, this, is expressing a burden to God. Something about verse 1 wasn't complete in the way that Abram understood it. There's something deficient about it. And so Abram brings that to God in verse 2. And he says, Lord, what are you going to give me? For I continue childless. For I continue childless. Okay? Now, there's a principle here that we're going to spend some time on for the next few minutes. Okay? And what's happening in Abram's life is he is not content with these earthly promises. He is not content with these earthly promises. And so he begins to pour out his heart to the Lord. And I'll just say this. Here's where we're going. This is that pattern by which God makes every human being that's going to be righteous, righteous. So God's going to take you through this same pattern if you will ever be saved. That you will not be content with earthly blessings only. And this is what we see. And Abram's arguing to God. I don't believe that he is arguing in unbelief. I believe that he is arguing in faith. And he's reminding God of the promise that God made him in Genesis chapter 12 about an offspring. So he hears the promise of the Lord in verse 1. And he brings the promises back to God and saying, Don't forget about this. I'm still childless. You promised me an offspring and I still don't have one. I want you to notice that something very, very specific is happening in verse 2 through verse 5. And so let's spend a few minutes um, talking about this. Abram is not asking for merely an heir. Okay? He is not asking God for someone to manage his possessions when he dies and oversee his house when he dies. That's not the request, okay? He is he is asking God for something more than that. He's not asking God for a mere heir because he already has somebody that can fulfill that role. If all he needed was somebody to oversee his possessions and to oversee his house when he dies, already got that. Eleazar of Damascus, Okay? Let's talk about the next thing that he's not asking. Okay? He is not praying and asking God to give him a child in the same way that many of you have asked God to give you a child. Okay? That is a real petition that many of you have brought to the Lord and some of you for a very long time. Okay? There's just something different happening in this request that's not what he's asking okay he's not asking to be relieved of the burden of of not having a child okay something very specific is happening in his request to God he is going to God and he is asking God to fulfill his promise God promised Abram an offspring And Abram is asking God to fulfill that promise. That promise is still not fulfilled, Lord. I am still childless. And so let's back up for just a second and let's talk about this offspring promise in the book of Genesis. Okay? Genesis chapter 3. God gives glorious promises to lost human beings like you and me. And He tells us in the midst of judging Adam and Eve for their sins, He tells us that there's going to be this offspring of the woman that is going to arise and crush the head of the serpent. And so you have this promise One, three chapters in the Bible. The same chapter that sin enters the world, God reveals redemption from sin, salvation from sin. And so from that point forward, all eyes are set on where is the offspring of the woman. And if you fast forward to Genesis chapter 12, that promise becomes more specific in Abram's life. And the offspring of the woman becomes the offspring of Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, we are told that this offspring that arises from the line of Abram is going to bring blessing. To all the nations of the earth. He's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. Now, of course, listen. Of course, that promise is conditioned upon Abram having offspring. You catch it? Glorious promises about the offspring. But the condition is you've got to have offspring. Offspring. And this is what he's bringing back to God. Of, I've, I've heard what you said, Lord, about these glorious promises about offspring, but I'm still childless. I do not have an offspring. And these offspring promises, they're the thread that, that, that weaves the book of Genesis together and even the whole Bible. Okay? That promise is the promise of Christ to come. That weaves the whole Old Testament together. Okay? That there is a promised one that's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. Now I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Because I want to to show you something for the second time in Abram's life. The Apostle Paul tells us something very specific about these offspring promises in the book of Genesis. Let's read it together. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 16 says this Now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So what the Apostle Paul does is he reads the Hebrew Old Testament and he notices that that word offspring is in the singular and not in the plural. And he makes this beautiful revelation to us that when God made that promise to the offspring, he didn't say the plural, he said to the offspring and then he says, and that's Jesus. And so we get this tremendous amount of light cast back into the old testament that the offspring promises that god continues coming back to in abram's life are specific prophecies to one singular individual the lord jesus christ okay he is the offspring of abram that's going to bring all uh, blessing to all the nations of the earth And so, brothers and sisters, I want you to think about this. What is he asking God for in verse 2? With this background, what is Abram asking the Lord to do in verse 2 when he says, What will you give me, Lord? I'm still childless. I don't have an offspring. What's he asking God to do? And before I answer that question definitively, because I want this to be really, really clear for you, I want to read one more verse. John chapter 8. And I want you to think about this. Before I make this claim. How familiar does the Bible say that Abram was with Jesus Christ? How familiar was Abram with Jesus Christ? And some of your brains are scrambled and say, wait a second. You're saying some really weird stuff because Abram's stuff happens in Genesis. And that Jesus stuff happens in the Gospels. And I might not know a lot of things about the Bible, but I know there's a whole lot of time that spans between, G- between Genesis and the Gospels. So I want this to be so clear to you. In John chapter 8, Jesus makes a claim about himself in verse 58. And he says this, Before Abraham was, I am. I am. So think about this. We're reading about Abram's life in, in Genesis 15. What's Jesus doing in Genesis 15? He is. That's, that's what He's doing. He is being the I Am that He always has been. He is the preexistent Lord of all the universe. So this is who Jesus is in Genesis 15. And then look at, just, just listen very closely to, to exactly what Jesus says about Abram. In John chapter 8, verse 56. Listen close. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that Abraham longed for the day of Jesus Christ. Not only that, that he saw from afar the day of Jesus Christ and he rejoiced. Abraham looked for Jesus. Abraham looked for the Christ of God. Abraham longed for the promised one. So, bring this back in. What is he doing? In verses 2-5, through five, what is he doing when he's coming to the Lord and he's saying, I remain childless. I do not have an offspring. The Bible tells us exactly what he's doing. He's longing for the Savior. Abram is longing for the Savior. This is exactly what he's doing in this passage. Listen to this. A pastor named Donald Barnhouse. He says, Abram is not grieving merely for the absence of an heir, but for an heir who is to bring forth the Messiah but for an heir who is to bring forth the Messiah. So I want us to to see this very clearly. Abram is longing for Jesus. He's longing for Jesus. And think about what we've said so far. Verse 1, God promises Abram earthly blessings. I'm going to protect you and I'm going to prosper you. Protection and possession. And his very next move is this. That stuff doesn't mean anything to me apart from Jesus. Where is the promise of the Messiah? Where is the promise of the Messiah? Do you see this? Okay, This is not spoiled brat. This is i got to have Christ. I need Jesus. He is laying aside the earthly promises as deficient without the promise of the Messiah who comes through the offspring of Abram. He is longing for Christ to be brought forth. So let's pause right there. And let's learn a principle of what it means to be right with God. Abram was not content... With an earthly portion in verse 1. Here's the problem. As we look out into the world that we live in, many people are content with the earthly blessings that are promised in verse 1. And so for Abram, it wasn't enough for him, he had to have Jesus. But here's the problem. The thing that we're almost always confronting is those things are enough for me and I don't need Christ. And I don't need Christ. I want us to learn this lesson well this morning. That if someone is to ever be saved, they go through this process that they are not content with the things of this world only. They must have Jesus Christ. And if they don't have Him, everything else doesn't mean anything to them. This is how God saves a man. This is how God saves a woman. He strips them of this earthly view of looking at things. And their treasure and their portion becomes Jesus. The Messiah. The promised One of God. A long life. A wealthy life. A healthy life. A secure life. It meant nothing to Abram unless he could participate in the one who would bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. An old Scottish pastor named Robert Candlish says this. He pictures Abram pouring out his heart to the Lord. And he says, Lord, my time is running out. Lord, I am almost dead. And then he says, Lord, where is the promise of the Savior? Where is the promise of the Savior? He is longing for the seed, the promised one, the deliverer. And I want to say this. Whatever you have learned about being blessed by God and however you would answer that question, has God blessed you, sir? Has God blessed you, ma'am? Whatever you have learned about what it means to be blessed by God, you better have learned this lesson. Okay? That earthly blessing from God apart from the blessing of Jesus Christ means nothing. Nothing. You hear this all the time. Lord, bless me and gave me a good deal on a car. Lord, blessed me and gave me a promotion at work. Lord, blessed me and gave me a bigger house. Lord, bless me healed this disease. Touched that situation in my family. Lord, bless me and did this. Lord, bless me and did that. Does it ever turn the corner and the Lord blessed me and gave me Jesus Christ and He's enough for me? God has blessed me for eternity in Jesus Christ. My sins have been washed away, and I have been given the perfect righteousness of the Savior. Is that how you think about blessing? The Bible thinks about it in a very different way than the church culture that we are, we are part of thinks about blessing. The prosperity gospel gets this exactly opposite, exactly opposite. And I don't just want to pick on that. I want it it to land on us in this room. Okay? of These thoughts that come into our mind. Lord, uh, give me this. Lord, I'd be really happy if you gave me that. Instead of hallelujah. All I have is Jesus Christ. God has given me Christ. He's given me the reward and the eternal riches. What's wrong with the prosperity gospel is that it stops at verse 1. And it says, God will give you stuff. God will give you a long life. God will give you a healthy life. God will give you stuff. Cars, money, promotion. And Abram sits that stuff to the side and says, That stuff doesn't mean anything to me. Apart from salvation from sin. That can only come through Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 8 verse 36. Jesus says this this way. He says, For what does it profit a man? To gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. So tease that principle out. What would it profit a man to live to be 250 years old? What would it profit a man to be insulated from every kind of earthly suffering that you could possibly imagine? Sickness. Disappointment. What would it profit a man to have boo-koodles and boo-koodles of possession in this world if one thing happens, if he forfeits his soul? And Jesus says it, 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 the, the implication is this, that it profits a man nothing, nothing. And this is exactly what we see happening in Abram's life. And we have to learn to think about blessing like Abram thinks about blessing, Okay. The way the Bible talks about being blessed by God is being blessed in Jesus Christ. In fact, listen to how it says it in Romans 4. Is this what you mean when you say God has blessed me? Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. That's what it means to be blessed by God. Picture a millionaire arguing with a homeless man. And the millionaire says, God has given me millions. I've been blessed by God. And the homeless man says, the Lord has taken my sins away and has not imputed them to me. I've been blessed by God. The Bible says the homeless man who has forgiveness of sins has been blessed by God eternally, forever. This is the same thing that we're seeing. Play out in Abram's life. Not an earthly portion, but he wants Jesus. Where is the promise of the Savior? It's his plea to God. And God responds to his plea for the Messiah in verse 4. And he gives him a prophecy that brings Abram tremendous assurance. Verse 4 says this Your very own son shall be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. What God is doing is God is reminding him that promise I made to you um, earlier in your life in Genesis chapter 12 about that offspring. I'm going to be faithful to that promise. That promise is coming forth. That promise is going to be fulfilled. You can take that one to the bank. God God is encouraging him. In the middle of Abram trying to reconcile these things. If you promised the offspring, but I don't see it. God says, you're going to get it. You're going to see it. It's going to come from your own body. So this this is a reminder for us that our God is faithful. That His Word is His bond. That it is impossible for God to lie. And that means it's impossible for God's Word not to bring forth into fulfillment. And the sooner that we can learn that... As followers of Christ, the better. That our God is faithful. His word will never be broken. Listen to how this is said in Joshua chapter 23. Verse 14, he says this. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Brothers and sisters, that's the same thing that we will experience. It is just a matter of time that there is not one thing that God has promised to us that's going to fall to the ground because he's faithful. So the Lord is reminding Abram that I'm faithful. I'm a promise making and a promise keeping God. And then in verse 5, this faithful God who walks Abram outside and he gives him, gives him just a glimpse of, of what he's about to do in Abram's life. Verse 5, we read these words. It tells him to look to the sky, look toward heaven, number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So once you get that picture in your mind, you know, just imagine just boot coodles of stars in the sky, you got no chance of counting them. That's not the point, you know, um, you got no chance of counting them and God is just encouraging you. Look at that. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Now I want to make sure we understand this because we, that word offspring showed up again. Okay. And something very interesting is happening in this promise. Because the same thing that the Apostle Paul told us about that word is happening here again. Paul knows what he's talking about. He says this. So shall your offspring be. Singular figure. Okay. Is going to come from Abram's line. That is going to be multiplied like the stars of the universe. Okay. Not so shall your offsprings be but so shall your offspring be. So I want this to be very explicit in your mind that in verse 5, God is talking to Abram about the Messiah. He is talking to Abram about the Christ to come. He is talking to Abram, specific promise about Jesus. Okay? So shall your offspring be. Singular figure, Multiplied like the stars of the universe. And that's the setting for verse 6. God is talking to Abram about the Messiah. Abram has sought God about the Messiah. And then you get to verse 6. And verse 6 asks and answers that question that we started with. How can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And verse 6 reveals this truth. This doctrine, this way that God deals with sinful human beings that we call justification by faith. Justification by faith. But that doesn't make the sense that it needs to make unless you drop it in the context of we are explicitly talking about Jesus. God is talking to Abram about Jesus. And then we get the pattern by which God will save sinners. In fact, this is a pattern that never changes. From Genesis to Revelation, this is how sinful men and sinful women are made right with God. This is the only way it happens. He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. I want to mention three things from that sentence. He believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. What do you know about that phrase? Has God revealed the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to you through that phrase? Through that sentence? So I want to mention three things. I want us to see from this phrase in verse 6. I want us to see that Abram was saved. By grace alone. By grace alone. By grace alone. So let's remember what we've already said about Abram and about every one of us. About everybody else in the universe. What does God say? Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. What about Abram? No, not Abram. No, not one. And so what we see here is we see a picture of God Make, taking an unrighteous man and God counting that unrighteous man as righteous. Okay? This is the grace of God. Abram did not earn that declaration that God made about him. Okay? Abram is not a morally perfect man that earned God saying, yeah, you're just a righteous man. The very opposite is true. Abram is an unrighteous man and an ungodly man who responds in a very specific way to God. And that specific response draws down justification in Abram's life. A a status of righteousness. And so this is grace. This is grace. Abram is saved by grace alone apart from works. He did not earn merit That status of righteousness, God gave it to him as a gift. And that was an instantaneous thing that this man experienced. That in a millisecond, in a moment, every sin, every rebellion that that man had ever committed or would ever commit is wiped off the record of his life before the judgment of God. All of his sins in a moment are forgiven. They're done away with. God will never remember them again. But justification is even better than that, right? Because He doesn't say His faith was counted to Him as forgiveness. It says His faith was counted to Him as righteousness. Not only is all His bad stuff slid to the side, and God never remembers His rebellions anymore, in a millisecond and in a moment, before these stars that are spread out in the heavens... God grants him the righteous record of Jesus himself. Perfect righteousness. And from that moment forward, this is how God relates to Abram. It never changes. Abram is as righteous as Jesus is. Because Abram is given Jesus his righteousness. The very righteousness of God. And I want to remind us, that's the same thing that happened to us. That is the same thing that happened to us many thousands of years later. In fact, Romans chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, says this. The phrase, it was counted to him, was not written for his sake alone. But for ours also who believe in Jesus. That this story is for us. This is how God deals with us. Even in the New Testament and even this day. He reckons us righteous through faith in Jesus, righteousness from God, justification. And I want to just mention something beautiful, beautiful reminder to the people of God. When it says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness, there's something that we need to understand about justification. There's a lot of things we need to understand. But one of the things that we need, you know, just driven into our heart is that justification does not happen in degrees. It does not happen in degrees. It's not like some other things in the Christian life. Some believers can be more mature than other believers. More sanctified in a sense than other believers. They can be further along in their growth than other believers. Not so with justification. There's no degrees to it. Everyone who responds to the gospel of the grace of God is given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not just some of it over here and a little more of it over here. We are given the same righteousness that the apostles had. We have the same righteous standing as the Apostle Paul and as Abram himself. There's no degrees to it. None. And even think about it like this. That today, if you are righteous before God, all your sins have been removed, and He sees you as perfectly obedient, the, the obedience of Jesus Christ imputed to you by faith, Listen, this is a a mind-blowing reality. Ten million years from now, you will not be more justified. You will not be more justified in ten million years than you are today. Jesus died for you and He said, it is finished. It's done. It is a finished work in our life. That all that other stuff that God has called us to do, we do it with this knowledge that we are righteous before God. Our sins are forgiven. That God sees me as righteous for Jesus' sake. Never be more righteous, more justified than you are right now in this moment. Man, the Lord can wake us up to that. Wake us up to the glory of what has happened to us. He was saved by grace alone. By grace alone. If you have not experienced that gift of righteousness, that counted righteous, then the first thing that we talked about today is the only thing that you can expect. Okay? The only thing that you can expect if you are unrighteous is to see the righteous Lamb of God in eternity and to stand before Him in your unrighteousness. The only hope for you to be right with God It's through being counted righteous by the grace of God. It is the complete opposite of works. Complete opposite of works. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. The complete opposite of works. I want to ask you, has this happened to you? Has this happened to you? Have you been counted righteous? And I'll just say this again. I feel like somebody in this room needs to hear this. Okay? If this has not happened to you, I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you believe, okay? What you believe and what the Bible says, the Bible wins. The Bible has authority. God says something that trumps you. God made you. He gives you breath. The very moment that God wills it, you will depart from this world. You're just a puny little finite creature. You disagree with God, he wins. And if this has not happened to you, I want to remind you of this. That it will, it will It's not like it might happen. It's not like this is your theory. God says that you will call out to the mountains and you will rather the mountains crush your brains in than see Jesus Christ, the righteous one, in your unrighteousness. You will be terrified. You will crawl under rocks on that day. This is how bad you need this justification. It's the eternal gift of God by the grace of God. Second thing I want us to see from Abram's life is that Abram was saved by faith alone. He was saved by grace alone, and he was saved by faith alone. Now, this was really interesting to me as I studied this passage, and very encouraging to me, okay? And here's kind of the thought process that I went through as I studied through this passage of Scripture, okay? Okay? Abram is saved by faith alone. And here's the, here's, here's the first thing I thought about. Genesis 15, Abram believed God. Abram believed the Lord. Genesis 15, 6. But here's the deal. That's not the first time that Abram has, has believed God. Okay, This is not the first time that Abram has faith. And we know that from Hebrews chapter 11, commenting back on Abram's life. So listen to this. In Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 8, we read this. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. What is he talking about? He's talking about Genesis chapter 12. We taught him that several weeks ago. That when Abram responded to the call of God, he he had faith. He believed God. He, He responded to that call by faith he obeyed. And so that sets the the mind rolling, right, of if Abram had faith already, why is Moses drawing attention in verse 15 and why does he want us to know that this is what faith that justifies looks like? Why doesn't he show us that lesson in Genesis 12? Why does it come to us in Genesis 15? That question arrested my mind for several hours this week. Why this? Why now? Why not other places? Many other places in Genesis 12 through 25 where Abram believes God. And I think there's two answers to that question, and the first I think is this, okay? That as Abram's faith shows up in those other places in Genesis 12 through 25, they're intermingled with his works. They're intermingled with his works. So in Genesis 12, Abram believes God, but he also responds to God's call. Or think about Genesis 22, where God says, Go to the mountain of Moriah and and offer your only son as a sacrifice. Abram certainly believes God when he says that, but he also leaves and goes and does it. So other places in Genesis, his faith and his works are mingled together. You see that? So when Moses wants us to know about the way to be right with God, he picks one place in Genesis where there's no question about it. All we see in Genesis 15 is faith alone and no works from Abram. No works from Abram. In fact, fact, next week we're going to talk about this. In Genesis chapter 15, just so we get this, make sure we have it. God puts Abram to sleep next week just so we all understand he's not bringing anything to the table. Okay? It is faith alone. Okay? A simple response to the promise of God about the Messiah in verse 5. And so I, was, I just want to say this. Okay? I think that this is something that God wants us to know from the very beginning of the Bible That the way sinners will be justified, the way sinners will be made right with God, is faith alone. Faith alone, apart from works. Now, many of you may have heard that phrase from the Protestant Reformation, and I just want to tell you this, okay? That's not a Protestant Reformation thing, that's a Genesis 15 thing. Okay, we we got Protestant Reformation trumped by about 5,000 years, okay? Genesis chapter 15. Moses wants us to understand that this righteousness was counted by faith alone. He does nothing. He does nothing of merit. He does nothing of works. He just believes the promise of God about the Messiah. Believes the promise of God about the Messiah. Why has God ordained that He justify sinners by faith alone apart from works? And the Bible actually answers that question very clear. That God, from the very beginning, determined that He would save sinners in such a way that only He would get the glory for their salvation. If He allowed works to be brought to the table, it would open up the door to what is called human boasting. Lord, look what I did. Got baptized when I was 15. Been into church since I was 7. Lord, look what I did. I do this. You know, I give this much money to the church. I'm always generous to to these people. Look what I did. It opens up the door for us boasting in ourselves. Listen to how Romans says this. In Romans chapter 3, verse 27. He says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by the law of faith, by the law of faith. So when God makes justification by faith alone from the very beginning, he cuts the legs out from under us boasting in ourselves for our standing with God. And that tells us something else about if you're ever going to make it to heaven, if you're ever going to be right with God. The only way that you're going to get there is not by boasting in yourself, turning your back on your own works, and boasting only in Jesus Christ. Faith that justifies is faith alone apart from works. Faith alone apart from works. In fact, the Bible promises anyone, this is even a thought in your mind or a subtle temptation in your mind of, You're not that bad or, you know, uh, God knows your heart Um, uh, deep down. God knows that you're doing the best that you can. If that's what you're banking on to be right with God, that God knows you're trying your best. That works in so many other human scenarios that you do your best and and you're accepted. It works in school, works in a lot of workplaces, works in a parent-child relationship. Do your best and you will be accepted. But I'm telling you on the authority of the Word of God, that does not work with God. Listen to me. Do your best and God will reject you. He will reject you. Why? None is righteous. No, not one. Your best ain't good enough for God. It doesn't come by works. Your works are tainted with human sin. He is the Holy One. He will reject you. Do not bring your works to God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, listen, no human being will be justified in the sight of God since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we have this principle revealed to us, 15 chapters in the Bible, that justification is coming through faith alone. And if you ignore that, if you ignore that and you say, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, got other plans, God knows my heart. He's telling you in his word that you no one who relates to God on the basis of works, no one will be justified. It will never happen. It is spiritual suicide. Justification comes through faith alone apart from works. Last thing I want to mention is that Abram was saved by Christ alone. By Christ alone. And this is probably the most beautiful part of this passage to me. That Abram, Genesis 15, was saved by Jesus. Abram was justified by... Was saved by Christ alone. We've already read this in in John chapter 8. That Abram longed to see the day of Christ. Abram longed to see the day of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is faith. He is looking forward to. He is trusting in. He is longing for the promised Messiah. He has faith. But let's let's talk about where this faith is landing in Abram's life. Okay? Okay? By definition, faith always looks away from itself. Okay, It always has an object that it terminates in. In fact, if it doesn't look away from itself to something else, faith ceases to be faith and becomes a work. Faith that doesn't look outward and that rests on itself is just another manifestation of human works. Faith always looks away from itself. Or another way to say this is that faith... Saving faith always has an object. Trusting in this thing, in this object. Okay, Which brings us back to the second reason why I think Moses zones in on Genesis chapter 15. Why not Genesis 12? Why not Genesis 22? Why this? Why here? Why now? If we're to understand justification, why do we get it from this story? And the second answer to that question is this, is that he locates the faith that draws down the righteous judgment of God, the justification of God. He locates that in Abram directly responding to a promise about the Messiah. He locates that in verse six in a direct response of God talking to Abram about Jesus. So what do we take from this? Okay. Genesis 15 explicitly teaches that the object of Abram's faith is the Christ to come. The object of Abram's faith is the offspring to come. The Christ to come. And I want us to learn something from that. Fifteen chapters in the Bible, the man is trusting in Jesus. That theme runs to the, all the way to the end of the Bible. Bible closes. Church history starts. And that theme is still happening today. This is the only way to be right with God. is not just general faith. It's not, oh yeah, mama believed in God. Grandmama believed in God. I believe in the man upstairs. It's not just general faith that I believe that God exists. That makes you a monotheist. Not a Christian. Christians don't have this general faith in God. They trust in Christ, the promised deliverer of sin. And we have to understand that, okay? Whatever else is true of saving faith, there are other things that are true. Whatever else is true, this is always true. Genesis to Revelation, the object of saving faith, is Jesus Christ. It terminates on Him, and let me say this, in Him alone. In Him alone. He is the Lamb of God, the promised one, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Why is this so? Why does saving faith always go to Christ and Him alone and no other? And that's a very easy question to answer. Is that from the very beginning of time, God has ordained to exalt one name above every name. And that when it all shakes out and history itself folds over on itself and time is done and we stand in eternity, the Bible says that on that day, one name will be exalted above every name. And it tells us that every single human being that has ever existed will bow the knee and confess... That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's plan before He even creates the world is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll pause right there and we'll close. And I'll just say this. This one that has been planned to be exalted from the very beginning. And that will He will be exalted through all eternity. That's the one that you must deal with. Every single human being that's ever going to be made right with God, that's ever going to be made pure before their Maker, they must deal with Christ and no other. And there are going to be two responses to Jesus, and I'll just remind uh, remind you of them very briefly. In eternity, there will be two completely separate groups that respond to Jesus Christ. Everyone will respond. But they will respond in a very different way. Those who ignore His glorious Gospel will be introduced to Jesus Christ in sheer terror. Those are the ones who are asking for Mount Everest to crush them into a million pieces rather than they stand before Jesus Christ in glory. These are the unrighteous ones, the ones who have ignored this glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ and they are not right with God. And the Bible tells us of this other group, and this is us, the church of Jesus Christ, the unrighteous ones made righteous through the gracious work of Christ, through the glorious gospel of Christ. And the Bible tells us that our response to Jesus on that final day is going to be very different. They're going to to say, hide me from Him. And we're going to sing this song, worthy are you Lord Jesus. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus. We're going to see Him in glory. We're going to rejoice at His appearing. They're going to hide from Him. He's going, to crush, he's going to crush them, but He's going to receive us. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And I'll close with this consideration. I just want to leave you with this if this is your decision, okay, this is the one with whom you must deal, this eternal one, this glorious one, what in your life even matters? What in your life really even matters if you have not responded appropriately to Jesus Christ? And the answer to that is nothing. Nothing. Let's pray together. Father, We thank you, Lord, for your glorious gospel. God, we thank you for your finished work in our life. God, thank you that you have saved us from wrath, Lord. That your salvation is not theoretical, Lord. You have plucked us from the fire, Lord. Brands from the burning, Lord. God, we give you praise today for your finished work in our life. God, and we ask for joy. And praise in our hearts, God, as we think about what you have done in the members of this church. Lord, and as we hear about your fresh work of salvation in the life of our brothers and sisters. God, I ask you to help them to boast in Jesus in the next few minutes. Lord, help us as a local church to magnify you, Lord Jesus. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to leave this place today satisfied in Christ and overwhelmed with your glorious gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.